It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And on today's show... Uh, there is a special connection between America and Israel. There is no space between the United States and Israel. We stand with Israel now and forever. God bless Israel, and God bless America. If I wanted to, I could play you clips like that all day. Professions from American leaders and Israeli ones as well of the solidarity between their two countries. And it is, no doubt about it, a special relationship. Despite endless complications and no shortage of tensions, it's so far survived every crisis. With each passing year, it seems like the U.S. and Israel are ever more entwined. And if that feels like something bigger than a mere alliance, more than a strategic partnership, well, that's because it is, says my guest today, the cultural critic Todd Gitlin. He says the bond between Israel and America runs much deeper than geopolitics, deeper than the events of recent history. It's about a shared sense of identity, and a metaphysical one at that. Both countries, he says, have at their core a belief that they have a mandate from above, that God is on their side. And that assertion that America and Israel were chosen is more than a feel-good slogan, more than garden-variety nationalism. It's a guiding principle that shapes the two nations' relationship to the world and to each other. Todd Gitlin is a well-known and prolific writer on American history and politics. He's currently a professor of journalism and sociology at Columbia University. He taught for many years at UC Berkeley and also for a time in the mid-1970s at UC Santa Cruz. And he's the author of the new book, The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election co-written by the Israeli journalist Liel Leibovitz. Todd Gitlin joined me recently to discuss the concept of chosenness in Israel and America, and we started by talking about that older notion of the Jews as a chosen people, an idea that Todd Gitlin himself absorbed when growing up, despite his mostly secular upbringing. Well, well Todd, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. How did you, growing up as an American Jew, receive this this notion of chosenness? Was it something that you were aware of? Is it something you felt? I would say it was something subliminal. Mm. Uh, It was in the atmosphere. I mean, it took various forms. It took the forms of trying to work out uh, which movie stars had originally (laughs) been Jewish. Uh, You know, so, uh, you know, long, long ago, I knew that Tony Curtis was Bernie Schwartz. Right. Uh, It somehow seeps into the the atmosphere that uh, that as a Jew or as specifically as a New York Jew, um, that you are on the receiving end of 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 a tradition, more, more not just the cultural tradition, but a a, a, a mindset, a mentality that uh, even even if you have no direct belief in a deity, in an almighty, uh, somehow the notion of, of having been set aside at the very least for historical suffering has has entered into the, the cultural water that you drink. Hmm. Now, now you write that the uh, the notion of being chosen is what fashioned the Jews into a people. The Jewish people are the product of a single, more or less, continuous idea. Um, even though it, it borders on um, the obvious to say that, you know, the chosen people is something of a cliche, it's still a, an audacious statement. I mean, others would argue that this idea of chosenness is something that goes in and out of um, consciousness, that goes in and out of relevance over various periods, that maybe it's a rhetorical notion sometimes and that it's not really a deep foundational notion but you believe that it really is an essential idea well it certainly was an essential idea at its inception that is a a jew by definition is someone who doesn't exist uh so the story goes until this designation takes place uh from god to abram as he's known then and your ancestors were jewish in that they trace either by blood or by choice, uh, a connection to this founding moment. Now, it certainly is true that at different times, the the notion of chosenness, which is so odd, 
is uh, contested or doubted or uh, fought over and transformed and that it goes in and out of uh, out of the cultural uh, stew uh, <laughs> and in an individual life as well it may it may be uh, deeply buried or it may be denied or it may be uh, iffy and uh, it may oscillate but it never quite goes away <sighs> uh, i mean it, it sort of keeps coming up even at times when you don't uh, when you don't expect it, I, I if, even I was just in Israel actually a month ago, and I heard a speech by Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, now uh, defense minister, uh, a, a, a totally secular individual, as far as I know, head of the Labor Party, which is uh, not much of a party, but insofar as, as it exists, he's the head of it. In the course of this after dinner speech, he, he mentions the the heavenly promise of Israel. It's kind mm-hmm. of astounding. I find it very striking. It just never goes away. Hmm. How seriously should we take the words of politicians in ceremonial occasions when they invoke a heavenly mandate or something like that, as most American presidents have, uh, or maybe all of them at one time or another, as I'm I'm sure most or all Israeli leaders have, and, and leaders of other countries as well? I mean, the big question for me is, how much of this is just a convenient and uh, and sort of solemnizing habit or um, mm. practice of rhetoric? You know, God, <laughs> God is looking over us. God yeah. uh, wants us to do these things. Our policies are justified because right. uh, we're favored in the light of God. And how much do you really think is 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 a genuine belief in this idea? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the boilerplate ending to a presidential speech for some decades now has been God bless America. Exactly. God bless yeah. You, yeah. Um, okay. So how seriously should we take it? Well, first of all, if, if, when a cliche hardens or, or, or withers into a cliche, uh, it ought to be taken seriously in that um, there's some bedrock assumption that it needs to be there. That is to say, it has a – there's a compulsion about it. So in that sense, any habit is worth um, is worth investigating and taking seriously. So even something that's a, a cliche uh, is revelatory. Secondly, you, you can't make everything of the fact that, that a certain lingo is, is – uh, pops up. But when it pops up in all kinds of different circumstances and when it pops up among the most popular figures and the most widely accessible figures in a culture, then it matters. I mean it matters when – yeah, it's one thing for presidents to, to talk God talk. But when musicians talk God talk, um, that tells you something. I mean we, we, have, a, we have a brief uh, look at Bob Dylan's um, God on our side. Uh, you know, in a way, he's the, he's the big God talker that we look at in the 60s. And, and um, you know, that's not, you know, that's not chopped liver, uh, that, that it's there as terminology of recourse for all kinds of people who are somehow or other in touch with, with, uh, with the longings or fears of a lot of other people, whether as politicians looking to be elected or musicians looking to uh, reach hearts. You, interestingly enough, have titled the book um, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election. Yeah, that's the subtitle. Yeah, yeah the Ordeals of Divine Election. Yes. Uh, you think of it as a, as a kind of um, burden more, more than um, a blessing? Well, I actually do. First of all, we emphasize the ordeals because normally uh, people tend to think of it as a, as a gift. You know, God has handed out party favors yeah. to his favorites and uh, lucky us, we got it. Uh, <laughs> but we argue that there's an, an, an other current of chosenness. It's not just that we're big, we're great, we're rich, you know, we're extensive, we're – uh, and therefore, you know, we win the prize. It, there's, we think there's actually a, a moral element, which in American history we identify most strongly with Lincoln, um, in which America is is chosen not as as a favor, but but sort of singled out for for I guess what Buddhists would call dharma, for duty, for for uh, obligation, for mission. Uh, that the designation of chosenness is not a reward for good deeds. It's it's actually uh, it's actually a burden to carry, and that that is part of the tradition. I mean, to me, that it's that part of the tradition is actually more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more adult. 
and it's it's a more uh, perplexing. I think it's more interesting because it's perplexing. And by the way, it's not just in, in the American history because this notion of being chosen is such a nifty idea, and it does a lot of work for a person to believe that God has specifically designated you. Therefore, you're surrounded by purpose and so on. But the fact that you're not exactly clear what it's for, and that along the way there there are lots of of pitfalls and and briar patches uh, generates a, a tradition of revolt and it, it's there in the story of Exodus from the very beginning uh, you know the Jews keep wanting to shrug off this burden they want they'd rather, a lot of them would rather have the golden calf and you know all this God talk and uh, so we think that this debate about how to make sense of a actually quite mysterious idea, is built into the tradition from the beginning. Well, the covenants that uh, God makes with various prophets uh, in the Old Testament are always problematic. I mean, they always <laughs> they always involve a deal uh, whose terms are pretty darn vague, um, usually involving a, a lot of mystery and a lot of suffering. Indeed. <laughs> and so it's no wonder that people are in revolt against it, but always are returning to it. I mean, the, 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 these books that were gathered, uh, for, you know, as a touchstone for the Jews were, you know, are not pretty tales of how nifty life is when you, you know, when you get circumcised. There, it's, you know, it's, it, there's a whole lot of pain in it. And yet this is the bedrock of the civilization. Now, uh, during the many years of exile of, of the Jews from, uh, from their starting point, it, it was certainly easier at many points, uh, to duck out and, and, and become something else than it was to sustain this, um, you know, to, to, to keep rolling the, the boulder up the hill. And yet they did keep choosing it. So uh, so in some sense, that's the struggle to get it clear and and not to relinquish this tradition uh, is is ongoing and is also, I would say, foundational. During those centuries of, of diaspora, uh, the notion of chosenness, I mean, for one thing, it, it clearly you know, can function as a consolation when you're being persecuted. Sure. Uh, and obviously it's a, it's a kind of solidifying idea, you know, in the yep. community. Um, but it must have been hard to nurse the idea that it was uh, a, a real anointment or blessing through all those years. Well, yeah, and and for sure, it it um, there were times when the consensus. I mean, a lot of times when whatever consensus there had been about the idea broke down, and you know there were there were fights between. Uh, we, we talk about the the uh, the Spanish Jew uh, Yehuda Halevi, poet uh, of the twelfth century, who thought that Jewishness was virtually a genetic and. Uh, a mark of superiority in that way, and and against him, Maimonides and others who who argued that in a sense the the the, the mission had been so vaguely stated in the first place that the, the Jews were the people who choose who choose to be Jews, a circular but differently inflected notion. So in any case, yeah, this idea people keep returning to it even even after you know untold persecutions and 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 it's of course attached to ethical ambitions it's it's attached to messianic ideals it's attached uh at at certain points in the during the jewish enlightenment to to universalist aspirations it's it's tied to the idea of the return to the promised land the territorial understanding of it and it it it, it it's a mutating idea but it keeps it keeps on let's um jump ahead in history to the late 19th century uh and the beginnings of the zionist movement I think most histories point out that the the leaders of the movement, like Theodor Herzl, were secular, and that this idea of um, a new Jewish state in the Holy Land was based on essentially fleeing persecution and uh, and finding a safe haven, uh, and it wasn't a religious idea. This is true. But you guys, uh, in your book, you and Leo Leibovitz, focus in on what you believe, I think, um, is an underlying theological a strain in early Zionism, and and you look uh, particularly at the figure of Abraham Isaac. Is it pronounced Kook? It is <laughs> Abraham Isaac Kook. Uh, tell me about this guy. Well, 
let's go back for a second. When Herzl uh, started organizing around Zionism, exactly as you say, it, it was a secular notion. It was it was a notion uh, that the Jews needed their own thing. You know, it's a world of nations. Jews are a persecuted nation within the other nations. Uh, the way in which nations stop getting persecuted is that they establish their nationhood. So the Jews need to do that. And most of the rabbis uh, found this a, a utterly wrongheaded idea because, in fact, an, a deeply irreligious idea because the, the, because it it implied that the Jews could and should regather before the Messiah came. I mean, it was, it was part of their eschatology that, yeah, eventually the Jews would come back together. It would be only after the uh, deliverance by the Messiah. Um, Rabbi Kook, the elder, was one of the few initially who uh, decided that there was something to this Zionist project. And so he actually migrated to uh, Palestine uh, in the early 20th century and uh, established himself there as a sort of more or less semi-official rabbi. Now, it remained true that a lot of the uh, – most of the migrants were were not uh, religious. They were they were not only secular, many of them, probably most of them were socialists of one sort or another. And they developed a whole range of ideas that associated with Zionism. But Zionism was never a single strain. It was always a bundle. Uh, of notions. And um, what's interesting about Rabbi Kook, the senior, is, is that his son, uh, also a rabbi, was, was the most essential single force in producing the religious settler movement which has had such gigantic repercussions as the uh, as the prime occupiers of the West Bank and and formerly of Gaza. The, so there's a line, uh, there's a lineage here. The, the younger Rabbi Kook took his father's idea and pushed it even farther. Um, what they did was to decide that I mean Rabbi Kook and his followers, the younger Kook. Uh, decided that the religious mission had to be attached to land. They were, in a sense, materialists. From my point of view, from our point of view, they're idolaters. They they actually don't know the difference between the land and the holiness. Let, and, let's and, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so the kooks, father and son, and uh, the son, by the way, affecting uh, in your account Israel's history quite substantially, right through the you bet. the beginnings of the settlement movement. They both had a very literal sense that 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 Jews had a claim to mm -hmm. what was Palestine, that it is rooted in theology. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was, of course, a, another faction uh, in Zionism and in Israel that was secular, that said this has nothing to do with religion whatsoever, that this is really a, a, uh, a pragmatic and, and security-oriented thing, and, and we have no original claim to the land in that regard. And it's a, it's a it's legal true. claim. It's a, Although it, even, e e yes, um, but... Legal or cultural, uh, yeah. there's a version of it that has, has to do with the language and exactly, so on. Exactly, yeah. But even, even the most secular of the founders uh, sort of dropped his guard of, of from time to time. Herzl, for example, told his first biographer about a dream in which he realized he was the Messiah. Right. Uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who was uh, deeply secular and is probably you know, the most important of the political Zionist leaders, also talked God talk uh, when it was convenient. Uh, how 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 much he intended by it or not, and and of course the 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 the, the organized Jewish uh, world was given a special position. Uh, ben Gurion decided that the that 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 the that the state would become in many ways theocratic. That is to say that or organized Jewry, organized Judaism, and particularly the Orthodox would actually be the central. You know, spiritual steering mechanism of the, of the state, even though he was not himself uh, a believer. So this undercurrent was always a current. It was under, but it was there, and it ebbed and flowed. In 1967, uh, after the uh, the taking of the uh, of the West Bank, the uh, recruits of the younger Rabbi Kook saw that this was an opportune moment to to put their land where their idea of holiness was that is to implant or in their view reimplant a nation whose holiness was intimately scriptural in origin and and should remain so uh, they used archaeology to underwrite their sense that they were the authentic residents of the land they used a bible study uh and they also used the 
in, in a way, they became the bad the the bad conscience of of the labor movement, which was left wing and secular, uh, but which sort of somehow recognized in these religious settlers something admirable, something that reminded them of their own youthful selves, something which which stirred their their some sort of primeval passion. Well, well Todd, why don't we? Um Tell the story. The 67 war in which Israel, you know, took control of the West Bank, you write that the intention of the leadership at that time, the government, uh, even Moshe Dayan, defense minister, uh, was not to lay permanent claim to the West Bank, but to give it back after peace had been established. But the younger kook, uh, Rabbi Svi Yehuda kook, actually yeah. went to the prime minister, Levi mm-hmm. Eshkol, and proposed the very first settlement. And yeah. that uh, Eshkol, who was lefty, labor, secular, basically caved and allowed it yeah. to happen. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. The, the, um, the, the, the strange thing was that Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, and other uh, military leaders thought that this was ill-advised. It was ill-advised to set up Jewish encampments uh, next to or right in the middle of Palestinian cities like Hebron, from which Jews had been expelled after a pogrom in 1929. Um, thought that if, that if insofar as there would be uh, continuing settlements in the West Bank, they should be militarily justified. So they they should be on mountaintops. They should be on the ridge. Uh, they should seize the high ground. And and it was it was they recognized uh, militarily crazy to implant these vulnerable uh, settler colonies. Uh, in places where they were outnumbered, they would they would actually drain security rather than imparting it. Nonetheless, it was done. Moreover, there was an interesting legal impediment. The ministry, the foreign ministry's own uh, uh, in-house lawyer, uh, issued an opinion very soon after the victory in the Six Day War, declaring that civilian settlements were illegal uh, under international law. There was no doubt of it. That the only kind of settlement would be a one that was number one military in purpose and number two provisional. Now, of course, what started getting built were civilian and religious settlements. Uh, so the government knew from the very beginning that these were illegal. So you know, we ask, well, why did they collude with it? Got labor governments were in power for ten years after these settlements began. Why did the Labor Party, which is ostensibly committed to a very different culture, style, ideology, sense of itself, why did they sign on to this project that was not only uh, ideologically uncongenial to them by virtue of being so zealous religiously, but also uh, so dangerous and so, such, such an irritant in Israel's relation to the world? And the, and the answer must be, the answer must be that somehow the religious settlers had a hold. They had a, they had a cultural, ideological, and 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 you know, sort of subterranean pull on these secular labor governments. Well, well, you know, a lot of people would argue that it was a matter of um, good old-fashioned uh, horse trading and, and politics, and you know, Eshkol at the time that Kook made his proposal for the first settlement was, I think, uh, by your account, in a in a weak po- position politically, and maybe he needed to, uh, you know, throw a few bones to the other side. Or, you know, this explanation is one that I think a lot of people would go with, that the, the left, as has so often been the case in, in the U.S. as well, just wasn't good at holding its ground, and uh, that it gave in little by little, and lo and behold, settlements proliferated down the decades. And the, the particular mathematics of Israeli politics uh, is what made this happen. But you, in, yes. in your book, uh, and this is consistent with your thesis throughout, that this idea of being chosen is much more than a convenient rationalization, uh, right, of the left-leaning government. They sensed, even if they couldn't admit, that the Messianists expressed some deep Jewish truth, hidden, yeah. essential, eternal. Um, yeah. I think that's something that you can't prove in a book like this, yeah, but it's right. obviously a conviction of yours. Yes, I mean we think we 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 know the 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 conventional explanations have to do with the dynamics of political parties and and tactical choices that eventually hardened into strategic choices and so on. And we think this is just not a very satisfying uh, explanation for some for the settlement project, which has been so ongoing. Uh, so deeply costly in life, in political stability, in 
in uh, you know the world's repute so enduring, so fierce uh, as simply uh, you know as to be the sort of the ghost behind the throne even today. It's now been forty three years of occupation. We think that to say well there was sort of there was some. You know, Eshkol was weak and, and the labor was flimsy or, or lacking of courage and so on. It just – that won't, won't do. That can explain some laps, some lapses. I don't think it can explain a lapse so fundamentally disturbing, so fundamentally definitive and jarring as the decision to continue the occupation of the West Bank at, at all the costs we've seen mounting to the very moment. Even though we could find parallels in American politics where a, a kind of wedge issue, even if it is uh, spearheaded by a rather small part of the electorate, can change the whole course of an administration. I mean, the inordinate influence of, say, um, anti-Castro Cubans on America's policy toward Cuba. Um, there are obviously cases where, again, the, uh, the logic of politics does cause these strange things to happen. Well, it's I mean, yes. I mean, if, if such factors matter. I mean, if if Florida were were if if the if the state where where the Cuban exiles had settled were were state of the population of Alabama, the United States would 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 surely have changed its Cuba policy long since. But I would still argue that a, a strand of conviction that persists over this period of time must have something else going for it, must have something deep. It's like, you know, observing a neurotic person who keeps making the same mistake over and over again. Mm. Finally, you conclude, hey, you know, what's bugging you, man? (laughs) I mean, what's really going on here? Uh, So in that sense, we're performing a sort of psychoanalytic maneuver on uh, both the Jews and the Americans. Mm. But you don't pathologize it. I think initially we were inclined to pathologize it. Um, it seemed like a, a gigantic mistake in both days, asking for trouble. I mean, one one dimension of the trouble that we talk about in the book is is how the idea of being chosen is so alluring that it inspires emulation and envy and resentment. Uh, you know, because then people who aren't chosen are sort of automatically inclined to say, "Wait a minute, that's a kind of great idea to being close to the one God, but why is it you and not us?" And in fact, that is. You know how you get from Judaism to Islam, which also maintains that that the the believing Muslims are the people of God. So it's a destabilizing idea. It's 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 a war-inducing idea, and 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 so if for no other reason, it's it's a dangerous idea. And we were we we were therefore disposed at the beginning to think well. Obviously, this world historical mistake was made, uh, you know, in the early days of monotheism, and and it should be canceled out. And we came to two contrary conclusions. Number one, it's too late. Uh, the world as we know it is the world that was formed around this monotheistic version of exceptionalism. And number two, there are some dimensions of it which might be strengths, which might prove to be bolsters to a different interpretation of chosenness, which is fundamentally ethical. And that's where we end up throwing our weight. We'll get to that uh, call to action, (laughs) if I I can call it that, uh, a little later in the interview. But back to Israel for just one more moment before we go on to the American version of chosenness. Um, I didn't want to leave out your earlier mention of what you think of as somewhat idolatrous, the idea that uh, chosenness means having a literal claim to territory or to geography. Um, How Mm -hmm. do you think phrases like uh, next year in Jerusalem, you know, spoken at the the end of the Passover Seder, were taken during the the two millennia of uh, the Jewish diaspora, uh, if not literally? Well, in all kinds of ways. I mean, as I said before, according to strict religious doctrine, uh, it, it was it was it was sinful to, as they said, climb the wall. Let's say to return to the area of the original temple that was destroyed in in the year seventy of the Common Era. Uh, it, it, it was it was sinful to do that in advance of the of the Messiah. So it was it was a symbolic uh, declaration. It was a declaration of attachment. It was a declaration of hope. It doesn't necessarily mean a declaration that there must be a Jewish state. By the way, I mean if I say you know next year in New York, that doesn't mean uh, that. <laughs> 
that uh, my family is is privileged to expel everybody else from there. It just means I want to be in New York next year. I, I don't think that's necessarily a nationalist premise, but it is a declaration of affinity and of enduring affinity and therefore uh, a declaration that, you know, we've the, – the Jewish people in this case have been singled out as – uh, as having an enduring nature, as having a, you know an unending project, uh, and that it has something to do with this particular place of origin. Do, do you think the phrase next year in Jerusalem and, and phrases like it referring to Jerusalem in, in Jewish tradition uh, were similar in some ways for, for quite a while to Blake's idea of uh, Jerusalem in his poem? Um, the last stanza is, I will not mm-hmm. cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, Till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Ah, oh, that makes chills run down my spine. Well, Blake, Blake is a beautiful example of a uh, of a deeply devoted religious man who has an understanding of the story, which he wrote about and illustrated uh, endlessly, as a story about uh, about ideals. Um, not a story about territory. Um, and there you are. I mean, it's a, it's a diasporan idea, if you will. And by the way, before the, uh, the American settlers became American, they were English. And, and what they brought to the idea of God's new Israel in the United States was an earlier idea that England was actually the place of the chosen people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Blake was very much in that tradition. And mm. there's, you know, that's a strong streak, not only in in, in in Christian history, but in Jewish history, that that you know that that the world is always what is what is right before you, and uh, and you, and you shouldn't live in the future. You should live in the present, and you should uh, make it uh, the most blissful you can. And uh, Jerusalem is a um, state of being, uh, not a uh, particular geographical <laughs> location. Yeah. Well, this is a very old idea. I mean, the uh, I mean, it's, you see it in the fourth century in in Augustine of North Africa, uh, who distinguished between the city of man and the city of God, and uh, and the city of God was not territorial. It's 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 a construct. It's an ideal. It's on another plane. Let's uh, cross the Atlantic now and go to go to America, and you know, I, I think where the idea of chosenness uh, with regard to Jews is, is is so well known; it's a cliche. It's a little more surprising to hear it associated with America. I mean, we we know that we say "God bless America," and we know that uh, people like Sean Hannity, for instance. Um, in fact, why don't we just listen to a little clip from Sean Hannity? Must we? <laughs> One of the reasons the United States is the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation on earth. Uh, We say it's the the greatest country God gave man. The U.S. is the greatest, best country God has ever given man on the face of the earth. (laughs) Okay, so that was Sean Hannity um, uh, repeatedly saying that uh, America is the greatest country on earth and saying, America is the greatest, best country God has ever given man on the face of the earth. So we're all familiar with that kind of statement about America as having sort of divine sanction. But the idea that um, America from the beginning had a, a good deal in common with Israel um, that, that you, you know, describe in your book, I think may be a little less familiar to people. Yeah, it's actually a revelation to read, especially the contemporary scholarship on the colonial period on the 17th and 18th centuries and realize how commonplace this idea was. Uh, and we, we associate such ideas with, with New England and, and the famous words of, Tom, of John Winthrop uh, about uh, building a city on a hill. Uh, but it, even in Virginia, which was a much more commercial, uh, much much less uh, exalted uh, colonial enterprise, uh, there was a whole lot of identification of the of the settlements with with uh, with building the new Israel, and that was a that was a phrase of, of the of the seventeenth century, God's new Israel. Uh, a lot of emphasis on converting the uh, the uh, the. Um, uh, the Indians and 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 Christianizing uh, the world, and so so it comes to pass to to skip forward here that even even Enlightenment intellectuals who were the founding fathers, many of whom were were deists rather than Christians, uh, even they felt 
a resonance from this idea that uh, that God had a particular race relation with uh, America. And uh, I mean, one of the fascinating moments to me that we discovered in the course of the research of this book has to do with uh, with a, a second interesting thing that happened in Philadelphia during the Continental Congress on July fourth, seventeen seventy six. We know what the first thing was. They wrote a document and signed it. They also set up a committee to design a great seal for America. And and uh, and the, this uh, committee, probably the most uh, illustrious committee ever appointed anywhere by anyone, at least since Jesus Christ, uh, it, it consisted of John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin. And these guys went off and and worked up designs for the Great Seal of the United States, and all three of them came back with designs from with biblical scenes in them. Jefferson, who who was so far from being a conventional Christian that he actually cut and pasted his own Bible, took out all the references to miracles and, and resurrection and and the virgin birth. Uh, even he came back with a design that showed uh, the Israelites wandering through the desert led by a pillar of fire and equivalent designs from uh from Franklin and and from uh and and from Adams. So uh you know and Je- even Jefferson who we you know may even think of as a heretical uh, sort of quasi atheist I think many people do th- Americans think of him that way today. Even he used this language of chosen people uh as president and both at the beginning and end of his presidency. Well to quote Jefferson uh saying exactly the, the kinds of things you're talking about The station which we occupy among the nations of the earth is honorable but awful, trusted with the destinies of this solitary republic of the world, the only monument of human rights and the sole depository of the sacred fire of freedom and self-government. From hence it is to be lighted up in other regions of the earth. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, that that goes farther, I think, than most American politicians today would go. uh, Although George George W. Bush definitely um, sounded that note. He indulged. He did. He did indulge. Yes. And I want to point out that, of course, the word "awful" there means awe, as in uh, shock and awe, not 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 bad, terrible. Yes. Yes. It's Uh, what today uh, kids would call awesome. (laughs) Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Right. But in that quote, we, you know, and I don't want to argue this continually through this conversation, but it's a debatable point as to whether uh, the notion of the divine there is, is one that's really just appropriated for, for purposes of um, solemnity and important, you know, sort of important ring to the thing, but where the real uh, mission has to do with a new kind of political system, democracy. Not Christianization, let's say. You know? No, no, it wasn't Christianization. Jefferson was certainly not a yeah, Christian. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but you see, debatable questions were meant to be debated, so we're debating it. Yeah. Uh, 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 the the in his total Jefferson's total immersion in uh, messianic language uh, to me is not just incidental. Uh, it's that it's the it's the uh, it's the the sea in which he's swimming. Mm. And that he's absorbed it, even though it, not doctrinally, not uh, and certainly not through a literal-minded interpretation of the Bible, but in you know the spirit that the American project is a transcendent project and has a special relation to the destiny of 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 the of the known universe. I think uh, I, I can't hear language like the passage you just read without thinking that this is. This is not a ditty he's singing, and it's not simply a, pol- a politician's exercise. It's not just an expedient uh, use of rhetoric. It's not just expedient. Okay. I don't think so. Um, and we don't have time to uh, list all the examples, but you, in your book, certainly do list many of presidents, you know, from the very earliest ones uh, right through the present, saying similar things, even using the word chosen. Um, but mm-hmm. the most interesting of them, as is so often the case, is, is Lincoln. Indeed. And uh, you quote a statement he made on route to his first inauguration. Mm-hmm. On route to his inauguration in Washington, D.C., he stopped off in New Jersey. He was coming from Illinois. And he delivered a speech uh, to the New Jersey State Senate in which he said, yeah. I shall be most happy indeed if I shall be an humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty of this, his almost chosen people. Yeah. Uh, it's wow. quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, wow is right. <laughs> uh, Lincoln, uh, 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 what can you say about Lincoln? Uh, so great. How could we deserve him? 
Uh, Lincoln never used the phrase chosen people again or before. Uh, you can use the wonderful search functions in the collected papers of Lincoln and check that for yourself. Such an odd and interesting statement. Nobody else had ever said anything like it. What could he possibly have meant? We argue that he was in a sense partaking in a, a variant of the chosenness concept in which it's the people themselves who choose what they must do, not that they will inherit uh, as a sort of legacy, a kind of passed down keepsake, but but that it, there's an active injunction to to refound the nation, that the work that makes up the difference between almost chosen and chosen is work. It's work that people have to do. There's no way to fill that breach but to do it actively. And and that implies an idea about that human action, uh, which persists, uh, I think, throughout his presidency. His, his, his even more profound statement about religion is in the, his great second inaugural where, where he says uh, these amazing lines that the Almighty knows his own purposes. That Lincoln, having noticed that both the Union and the Confederacy uh, affirmed that they had a special relation mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. So, so Lincoln was very much, you know, I think, to use modern lingo, an existentialist. He believed that people define themselves, uh, and they define themselves through their actions. I, I think you, uh, I think you yeah. you uh, suggest also in the book that that phrase "almost chosen" might be a reference to that huge stain on American democracy at the time, slavery. For, indeed, and and uh, you know Lincoln was was reluctant to talk that up very uh, vigorously before before the South actually seceded because um, that would be waving the red flag and and of course for a long time he didn't want to assert that the purpose of the war was to end slavery he wanted to to assert that the purpose of the war was to preserve the Union but I would say that he was inching up to uh, this idea that it was somehow entailed logically in belief in God that slavery be viewed as an abomination and be abolished, although it took him a long time to get there. Of course, the the idea that uh, America is a chosen country, especially a favored country in the eyes of God, is something that any uh, politician who wants to score points would say, that devout people would say, that especially a... um, something that, that a right-winger in the U.S. would tend to say. Someone like Sean Hannity, <laughs> who yeah. we heard, heard a moment ago. Uh, but did you find um, coming up in the left, I mean, you were a president of uh, the SDS, mm-hmm. the Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah. D- did you see any similar, uh, you know, sort of feeling saturating the, the 60s uh, movement, uh, an idea that we we have a special duty, a special obligation as Americans to right the world's wrongs. You do find this idea of chosenness uh, profoundly right in the middle of the 60s movements, and you find it in the civil rights movement. Um, We quote uh, at a number of points from Martin Luther King, of course, was a Christian minister with, you know, theologically highly educated among uh, others by Reinhold Niebuhr and, and, and people who had you know, a very complicated idea about the relation between America and chosenness. But King picked up a strand of American thought that you already see in the in the 19th century, uh, that the uh, African-Americans are the people who not only must free themselves, but must also redeem America. This is American Protestantism, missionary Protestantism on the march. And it, of course, it has a secular inflection and, and and it has nothing to do with turning America into a Christian republic, Christian state or any of that nonsense. But it does have a great deal to do with realizing an ideal uh, which has a spiritual foundation. And that's what King believed to the end. Yeah, I think that's true from the very, very beginnings of uh, the civil rights movement before it was even called the civil rights movement. Of course, the identification with Moses and the Israelites. Yes. The, you know, talk about the promised land. I mean, those, that biblical narrative is absolutely the central mythological point of identification for black Americans, uh, you know, going all the way back. But um, what about the student movement of the 60s? Did you see anything like that there? 
Not in so many terms, although I would argue, I think we argue in in a later chapter in the book that by the late 60s, what, what we start seeing is a kind of secular sublimation of the uh, of the idea of redemption except now the the agent of liberation um, is the global revolution I think that ideas of of salvation through class war as peculiar as they may ring to a Christian ear are are fundamentally founded in uh, in a uh, in, in a, a variation of uh, of the iconography of salvation, which descends from the biblical story. I mean, it may seem odd to think of you know Chairman Mao as uh, as uh, Jesus, but that's mm-hmm. certainly how he was. That's certainly how he came to be regarded. And 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 Che Guevara, of course, is you know nailed up on the cross. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know. So yeah, I, I think that what you start seeing is you know. Seeing 68, 69, 70, and so on is a transfiguration in the student-led left of the religious iconography, which which you know which all of them would have renounced mm. uh, into a, into a palatable form, uh, which in which you know of course the revolutionaries get to play the apostles, uh, you know, and get to be uh, you know the the folks in charge. Well, well, yeah, and 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 the degree to which we're talking almost about deep human archetypes um, makes me again want to ask: Well, are Israel and uh, America really so exceptional in describing themselves this way? Don't most movements uh, assume the trappings of something holy and something sanctified? Don't most countries have foundation myths that are? in some way theological. Uh, how, how special are these two countries? Well, th- that's a good question. Uh, you know, most, I mean, all nations, I think, have a foundational story, which which is essentially a myth, um, which is to say it includes elements of falsity. Uh, nations, the history of nations is not pretty, and, and, it, and the ground on which they're founded is always bloody. Uh, what's, what is remarkable is that in the case of the United States and Israel, the theme endures. Uh, other nations had it kicked out of them. They, uh, defeat is actually one way of losing uh, a sense of one's uh, special relationship to God. So, you know, the Germans had it at one time. The Russians had it at one time. Uh, Armenia had it at one time. Uh, you know, the English had it until they rejected it and the English who furthered it came over here and established the, the New Jerusalem here. Uh, and there's a Hindu version of it. There are various versions of it. Uh, the, the remarkable thing is that it persists in these two cases, and uh, that it's, and that also that it's foundational. That is to say, uh, the the very idea of the Jews goes back to an idea of a covenant with God, and the very idea of America goes back to the idea of the mission. You know, and other peoples who've persisted have have actually in some cases rather recently had to had to abandon uh, or close the door of chosenness there's actually a very interesting book by a historian uh, Donald Ockerloff a Canadian uh, talking about this uh, imagery in in the life not only of Israel but of Ulster Northern Ireland and among the Boers among the Afrikaner speaking South Africans mm-hmm. uh, you know it's hard to sustain that once you've once you've lost Lost, once you have to share power. But, you know, America and Israel are triumphant. And, you know, the question somebody – I gave a talk about this a few weeks ago in, in Jerusalem and somebody, uh, I think, put this very nicely. Uh, he said, you know, when I read, when I read a book, I, I sort of wonder to what, to what is uh, – to what question is this book – does this book intend to be an answer? And it seems to me what, what, what your book intends to answer is the question, why is it when fundamentalist Christians go to visit religious settlements on the West Bank, they feel at home? And I thought that was actually a very nice formulation uh, mm. of uh, what we're trying to mm. answer in this book by way of also ex- trying to explain something of the special relationship, the the intense uh, continuing sense of a, of a shared destiny, even against security considerations, even against economic considerations, uh, through various f- policy vicissitudes. Uh, again, that sense of of the common project 
uh, persists. And, and I think it's because these two histories recognize each other as somehow rhyming or, or proceeding along parallel paths. That, that, that sense of a common project wasn't always there. I mean, was it? No. Uh, I mean, at, at the very beginnings of uh, the Israeli state in the late 40s, I'm going to say that the average American might have been interested, they might have been sympathetic, with, especially with Holocaust refugees, but they had no real stake in the founding of Israel, did they? No, they didn't. And in fact, uh, it was Soviet Russia that, uh, you know, partly to get back at English colonialism, that actually uh, played a crucial role in uh, legitimizing the partition plan uh, at the United Nations. But Harry Truman, actually, uh, who was a much more profoundly religious president than than is generally understood, he had a sense of uh, destiny in what he was doing. And he was advised by by perhaps the most popular military figure in America, General Marshall, who was his Secretary of State, uh, not to recognize the state of Israel because it was much savvier to make friends with the Arab nations. I mean, Marshall knew very well who had the oil and who didn't. Uh, now, now, certainly there was an electoral consideration. Uh, there was certainly you know, a more significant Jewish lobby than there was an Arab lobby in America. But but for, for Truman, it was also a matter of deep belief. And he once declared uh, to an audience that he was Cyrus, referring to the emperor of Persia, who had freed the Jews in the, you know, according to the book of Esther. The, the alacrity with which Truman acted uh, in uh, in recognizing the state of Israel 11 minutes after it had been declared it cannot be understood simply as raison d'etat. Mm-hmm. It has to be understood as a deep-seated sense of of, of, of fraternity. Hmm. Well, I, I think, um, and this is my own impressionistic take, that that sense of fraternity, in, in, you know, in the broad American populace took a very long time to develop, uh, to get to the point where it is today. And part of it certainly has to be um, well captured in the, the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. For many years, uh, obviously, Israel was our ally in the Middle East, uh, where most of the Arab world had fallen into the, the, the Soviet sphere of influence. And, and that really cemented the bond, I think. And then and then as soon as the Cold War wanes, you have the rise of Islamic extremism and, and uh, terrorism directed at the U.S. And once again, Israel is our, our, our sole ally in that particular battle front, you know, uh, in the Middle East. Um, doesn't that have a lot to do with it? Well, Israel is actually not our, our sole ally. Uh, with, with uh, you're right. I realize it. You, you have yeah. to, you know, you know, credit to you know uh, the you know autocratic governments of Syria and Egypt, among others, for uh, you know hating Islamists uh, just as much as we do. But the American populace does not see Egypt and Syria as our brethren yeah. in this struggle, but they do see Israel as you know our comrade. Well, that's true. And, and, you know, the conventional explanation would be that the U.S. appreciates that Israel is also a democratic country. So we, we sort of see an affinity there. Right, now, right. Now, I, I would argue, uh, I'm sure many would take issue, but I would argue that Israel is actually becoming a less democratic country. And that is actually not costing it in terms of the esteem it feels from America. Uh, at this conference I was recently, I heard public opinion data about attitudes toward Israel in, in a number of countries. Uh, and whereas in Europe, for example, uh, since the Gaza war of oh. Seven was it or oh eight and the flotilla event, the esteem in which Israel is held in Europe has plummeted. It is not in the United States. Right. I mean, Americans are more forgiving and more and more attached to some sort of ur some sort of core idea of, of Israel's centrality. I, I do think it goes deeper than calculations of mutual advantage. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you know, we pay a very high price geopolitically for the American attachment uh, to Israeli policy. I mean, it can't be seen as uh, as a simple uh, rational calculation of self-interest. In so many ways, it is not. One other um, point of emotional identification uh, by Americans with Israel is a kind of sense of insecurity, of perpetual insecurity. In, in Israel's case, it's easy to understand. Tiny country surrounded by uh, mm-hmm. hostile or potentially hostile uh, nations. 
In America's case, where you could hardly be more secure in the world today, I mean, the threat of truly being overrun is non-existent in this country, and yet there is a sense, um, at least in certain parts of the political spectrum, that we're embattled in exactly the way that Israel is. Yes, that's that's exactly right, and it's so interesting and and odd in a way because um, you know one would think, for example, that India um, would feel far shakier than the United States. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how to take the temperature of Europe today because we're being told the Germans have been alerted that there's there, there there's a terrorist attack coming, and I you know the Germans may well have their own way of playing out their anxiety. Uh, it, it is so interesting that Americans, that the sense of embattlement is so intense in America. I mean, you know, so many versions of it. You know, they're coming over the border from Mexico. You know, 20 years ago, it was the Japanese who were crushing us. Remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. You know, now with the Chinese are whomping us, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, uh, oh, and the Islamic and, and hordes course, are going to be at our gates Islamic, any minute. Yeah, yeah, well, they're already at the at the air gates, you know, at the airports, and uh, you know, sometimes they are. But I mean, we we do go, I think, nuts uh, in in terror, and there's something, you know, I guess I don't quite get it. Um, the, the, just as Americans, you know, conservative Americans tend to think Americans pay the highest taxes in the in the in the modern world, which is absurd. Uh, just as they think that corporate taxes are the highest when they don't take into account all the loopholes. There is some way in which, you know, Americans have uh, this or weaning anxiety about, you know, we have it and they're coming to get it. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson kind of blurted, who was not, uh, who was one of the less uh, religious uh, or or even uh, you know outspokenly ideological of the of the modern presidents had a, a fascinating moment when he was on a tour of American bases in Vietnam in sixty five or six, uh, and he said uh, something about how we we got to hang the coonskin on the wall, and he said about communists uh, about communists in Vietnam. He said he said they want what we have, and we're not going to give it to them. This was at a time when America had, I don't know what percentage of the world economy. Uh, we were at, at the peak of prosperity. Uh, you know, Americans had the lion's share of, of consumer goods, of, of, of cars, of, uh, you know, of, of income, of tr- world trade. And yet there was this, you know, anxiety. Uh, uh, you know that led to people fearing. You know the Viet Cong were about to land on the beaches of of, of San Diego, and I, I don't altogether get it. As you say, it's far more rational for Israelis to be aware of the as as they like to say tough neighborhood they live in. But we have a you know we have a virtually unfortified border to our north, one of the longest borders in the world. And, uh, you know, Mexicans have been pouring into America, you know, for depending on how you want to count it, centuries. Uh, and while you could conceivably argue that they're, you know, that they're taking some jobs, I don't think you can argue that they're, you know, seeking to win back New Mexico. Or Texas. <laughs> or Texas, although, well, I won't, I'll, I'll restrain myself there. <laughs> I know where you're going. Um, yes, you do. You, you said earlier that um, it's, easier to feel chosen when you're a winner, you know, on the mm-hmm. uh, the world stage. And that yeah. some nations who in the past felt chosen had to uh, reevaluate their, their relationship. Uh, yeah. uh, but w- what happens, you know, hypothetically, if America enters a period of decline? What, what do you think will happen to that idea that we're special and, um, and singled out among the, the world's peoples? Well, it's a perilous period. Um, I mean, the Brits had to go through this uh, as they lost the empire, and and it was shattering. Uh, and there were variants. Uh, there were there were you know disputes about how to cope with it. I mean, I suppose uh, on one end is is the mature road of sort of recognizing that that all national predominance uh, passes. That you know the United States cannot be. The dominant economic power. Uh, no nation has ever sustained it uh, for its entire history. 
you know, empires uh, are eaten away, and uh, and uh, you know, sort of one goes gently into that good night. You know, there's more. You know, the the we have enormous problems nationally and globally, and. Uh, we have uh, even if one construes it as a religious mission, a mission to be a city on a hill and uh, show some good stuff. And America, I'd say largely culturally, sometimes militarily, uh, has that look to a lot of the world. That's not completely made up. But there's you know the dark uh, determination, the 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 uh, the harsh and uh, more or less hysterical determination would say, well, we're destined to be uh, sitting on top of the hill. And the, if, if we're actually being dislodged, it must be because there are enemy agents among us, because we are ideologically shabby, because we have too many gay people, too many Muslims, and so on. And you get these, these uh, xenophobic spasms, which are extremely dangerous. And we're obviously living through some of that right now. Well, let's return to something you mentioned earlier, and I said we'd take up with again, and that is the fact that you and uh, Liel Leibovitz began this book with a great deal of skepticism about the idea of chosenness. In fact, you write, we began writing this book wishing to put out the fires of chosenness, but then you go on to say, but completed it thinking that however dangerous they are if allowed to rage out of control, they are here to stay and just might light a way forward. All right. Todd, make your case. Well, I mean, the, the practical argument there is that this sense of identification is so profound that it, it just cannot, it's too late to uproot it. But, but the, you know, sort of on the, on the front of, of, of making, making virtue of necessity, we, we think that, you know, the, the, you can't help but read uh, a John Winthrop or a, uh, you know, or, or a Jefferson to take a very different version of this without feeling that, you know, America has has achieved enormous amount that it 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 did actually open up a new space in the history of the world, the, the possibility of democracy, and that for all its ugly uh, failures, uh, that actually we gave a lot to the world. Uh, you know, ideas of democracy, including the modern versions which take the form of, of, uh, of human rights and, and, uh, and, and related, uh, you know, the aspirations of women, the idea of racial equality and so on. I mean, this is, I don't have to go on at length about how alive American ideas have been and how they're frequently taken as transcendent ideas uh, by people elsewhere who still find inspiration in them. And Americans could not have done a lot of this, a lot of what they've done without some huge sense of of a, of a mission. So I don't think that that sense of ourselves is dispensable. Uh, it doesn't, it, to my mind, have to be attached to a conventional idea about an, a supreme being, but it does have to transcend immediate purpose and and uh, the immediate limits of humanity, which are evident, uh, if for no other reason than in the fact of mortality. So, uh, you know, people need big uh, ambitions, I think, to accomplish big things, and I'm for the big things. But uh, it's it's hard knowing what I know about you to think that you're in favor of a real idea of American exceptionalism. I mean, wouldn't you be more an advocate of a kind of universal idea that we have moral obligations in this world? Uh, does it have to reside in a single nation? No. And in fact, there, there are many. I mean, every nation has an exceptionalist idea about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's not usually attached to a to a, a, a national to a deity. I don't myself think that, that there's a necessary connection. But I don't feel alienated uh, from people who think that the assignment of this particular project, the, the small-D democratic project, the human rights project, the liberty project of, of, of the United States at its best, I don't feel alienated from, from people who think that that is their way of finding God in the world. That's okay with me. And I, I don't find uh, atheists, um, you know, militant atheists, uh, which I'm not, by the way. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm an agnostic. Um, I don't find them, uh, you know, sort of superior people, more Kantian in their ethics and, and more uh, 
uh, more loving or more uh, self-renouncing than uh, religious people, or vice versa. It's the uh, it's the abusiveness of of, of narrow definitions of uh, religion that that struck me as so horrifying. I mean, they the, we we had this huge fight, you remember, in New York, and we, we'll have it again, I'm sure, about the Islamic Center that some people want to build near near Ground Zero, and and I did a lot of writing and reading about this during, during the summer. Uh, when I read uh, the writings, which are f- fairly voluminous, of the, the Imam uh, Raouf, who, who is the chief of the uh, hypothetical Islamic center, uh, he's a Sufi. He's a, Sufism is a sort of a mystical strand of Islam, uh, much persecuted, actually, in much of the Islamic world. When I read him, uh, he talks about God as love, I I feel a fellow feeling with him. The fact that he thinks that America is a place where where you can actually pursue, uh, you know, great things, uh, value-laden things, makes it uh, more pleasant than it would be otherwise to be an American. So, uh, you know, but I, I am an internationalist at the same time, and I don't actually see a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did an earlier book about uh, called "The Intellectuals in the Flag," which is partly about uh, you know finding a resource in in patriotism, which is not at odds with the with the historical internationalism of the left, but is mm-hmm. actually a, mm-hmm. a continuation of it. I associate that idea with Santa Cruz, by the way, because for many years the only uh, writer who who made this argument uh, on the left was John Shar, who taught for many years in the, in the politics program. Be- better at, known as Jack, actually. Better known Jack, as Jack, indeed. Yeah. Jack wrote this piece in 73, I think, that was really an inspiration on this very subject. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, long live that idea. So, you know, it, I know it seems hard to get one's mind around the idea that one can be attached to a nation and at the same time attached uh, to humanity. And I, yeah, obviously from minute to minute there are conflicts. Just as it's hard frequently to imagine being attached to a family and to a nation or to a family and humanity. Jesus didn't think it was very easy, for example. Uh, to the contrary. But, you know, these are, you know, one one way in which one lives is to, you know, work it out in practice, and which ain't easy. Um, so there I am, um, living an uneasy life. <laughs> well, uh, may it continue to be uneasy in, in the best sense of the, <laughs> of the word. Thanks a lot, Todd. I've really oh, enjoyed talking pleasure. to you. Todd Gitlin is professor of sociology and journalism at Columbia University, where he chairs the Ph.D. program in communications. We discussed his latest book, The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election, co-written by Liel Leibovitz. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. My name, it ain't nothing My age, it means less The country I come from Is called the Midwest I start and brought up there The laws to abide And that the land that I live in Has God on its side All the history books tell it They tell it so well